Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much. Church, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We'll, we'll spend some time together this morning. We read from Ephesians 6 during our scripture reading time, and I told you that it contained really some hints as to where we were headed with our sermon. Uh, we're going to look this morning at the story where Jesus heals a man who had been oppressed, even possessed by a demon. And so the, the subject of spiritual warfare comes up. Uh, but I want to introduce it this way. Um, I am so interested with, when I'm watching TV at how-to videos or how it's made kind of videos. So they'll take some product that we're all real familiar with or that we all like, and they'll, they'll take a camera crew behind the scenes and show all of the engineering, all the, the, the robotics, all of the individuals that go in to making those products on a mass scale. And it's just interesting to me as I see those things. It's interesting as well if you get to have a bird's eye view on like, like a behind the scenes of a, of a theater production or something like that. Because what we see, right, when we have the finished product or what an audience sees when they watch a play or a musical or something like that is only just a fraction of what's going on behind the scenes. There's so many people involved. There's so much choreography and timing and creativity that goes into all of those things. I think this passage here this morning, Mark chapter 5, is a little bit of a behind-the-scenes glimpse into how Jesus works, right? What we see sometimes is we see an individual who maybe is convicted of sin. Maybe they, they cry a little bit. Maybe they kneel at the altar and pray. Maybe they get baptized, right? We see those things in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, if we could go behind the scenes, I would argue that there's so much more going on. Well, in the ministry of Jesus, we have an inbreaking of the heavenly realm, the spiritual realm manifested in the flesh, right? In the physical, in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus bridges both of those realities. And his personhood, his life and ministry are glimpses for us uh, of the, the line, uh, as blurry as it may seem from time to time, that exists between the physical and the spiritual. So with that in mind, let's read Mark 5, first 20 verses, as a behind-the-scenes look as to what's going on when Jesus saves somebody from their sins, when Jesus delivers someone from lostness or from addiction or from a stronghold that sin has in their life. Let's read that passage this way. Mark chapter 5, look at me at verse 1, and we'll read the whole story together. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, this is interesting, he fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? 
I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what's your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. The them there is a reference to the fact that this man was oppressed not by one demon, but by many, many demons. Now, a great herd of pigs, verse 11 says, was feeding there on the hillside. And so they, this host of demons under the moniker Legion, they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out. They entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man the one who had the legion now sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Church, this is God's word to you today. Let's pray and seek God's blessing over this time of preaching. Father, we thank you for your, your gift, Lord, of the word to us. Lord, this small story is such a powerful thing to us today. God, would you take this time and this sermon, and Lord, would your powerful voice speak to us. Heavenly Father, I pray to your children, would you speak today? We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said together, amen. Let me share with you about this passage. I think we can summarize what transpired here with three words, very basic outline this morning, three words, and we'll discuss some of the ramifications along the way. The first scene I describe with the word oppression. This man living among the tombs, crying out, guarding the seaside, rushing down the moment a boat lands on shore, uh, on shore, scaring off any visitors. You know, the whole town had to know about this man, oppressed as he was by a host of demons, living amongst a graveyard, a cemetery, cutting himself, screaming and crying out at all times of the day and night. This was an oppression. This man was ruled by evil spirits. The Bible describes the spirit here as an unclean spirit. Now, uncleanness primarily 
described in the Old Testament is a word that means it's something that's unfit to worship God. And so an individual or an instrument used in the temple or an animal in the Old Testament might be described as being unclean because it wasn't ready. It wasn't right. It wasn't according to the way it ought to be in order to worship God. The man lived, we're told, among the tombs. Now, first off, that's just creepy. Am I right? Have you ever been in a graveyard at nighttime and experienced how spooky that place can be? That's where this guy took up lodging. Isolated as he was, a man who was dead on the inside, living among death on the outside. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, speaking of everybody before they meet Jesus Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sin. This man's death on the inside was, was so intense that it was being expressed on the outside by how he acted, by where he lived. Our passage says no one could bind him. At one point, it uses the word anymore, an indication that they had tried and failed. There was nothing they could do to restrain this evil there in their community. And so they just left him alone and hoped that maybe they could put some distance in between him and his evil. Let me tell you, this oppression is descriptive of both the power of lostness over an individual, the power of lostness over a community, and also descriptive of the power that sin can wield over someone's life. And not just the life of someone who's unsaved. But brothers and sisters, you hear me well. Just because you've had an experience with Jesus, just because you can say with a clear conscience, I know I'm a Christian, that doesn't mean that you can't be affected by demons, that you can't be harassed or even held down in some ways, oppressed by demons. So we see this description here of lostness and of sin. I'm going to tell you, in the same way this man so vividly is oppressed by demons, we have people here in our community who live on our streets, who work in our places of employment, who shop at the same stores, who go to the same sporting events, people we rub shoulders with, interact with, who are oppressed no less by the lostness of their lives before God. Now, on the outside, we may not see the signs of that lostness. That doesn't mean that they're not there. If you don't know Jesus Christ, demons and the devil himself has a claim to your life. And we are no better off than was this demon-oppressed man. We see this picture of lostness. Y'all, lostness oppresses people all around us and here. Okay, it's not just in big cities, right? It's not just on the coast out west or up northeast. It affects, lostness affects us no differently here in the Bible Belt or the heartland where good old-fashioned values we like to think still have some pull in our community. There's just as much lostness here. You know how I know that? Y'all, okay, so one of my children is sick this morning. That's where, that's, Lauren's not here this morning. Bo had a rough, rough night, rough morning, just throwing up. There's a little virus going around. And so in between Sunday school and worship, I went around, I visited a few Sunday school classes, and then I snuck off and I left the church campus during church hours. Can you believe that? And I went to Walmart to get Gatorade, some uh, plain animal crackers, and a Nerf gun. 
all in an attempt to make my little boy feel a little bit better. And I ran him home real quick. Bo was passed out on the couch in between upheavals, I'm sure, and I jetted back here to church. But let me tell you what I saw at 10 a.m. this morning as I drove around Hazelhurst. There's way more people out there than there are in here. Way more. Like, it's not even close. I, God help them. I hope they don't watch the Facebook video. I saw a few church members at Walmart. It was awkward. Good morning. How are you? Good to see you. Hazelhurst is a wonderful town. It's a blessing to live here. But y'all, family after family, after home, after person, are so affected by lostness. We, we think about a man who's demon-possessed and say, oh, well, he's more lost. You, you only, there's only one kind of lost. Either you know Jesus and he reigns in your life, or you don't and someone else reigns in your life. There's lostness all around us. If there is no desire in your heart to worship with God's people, if there's no desire in your heart to spend time with God in prayer or in his word, no desire to serve or to share, these are markers of lostness in our lives. And they hold sway and grip our loved ones. Lostness, it is oppressive like this man by the sea. Lostness doesn't like to be bothered, right? You show up on its shore, it says, no, what are you doing here? Lostness does not like to be restrained. Lostness wants nothing good for us. Let me tell you this morning, okay? I want to just shake you up the way that this image would have shaken up these disciples there on that shore. Your lost friends and family members are not okay. They are not okay. They need Jesus. They are shackled and unwell like this man. What this man looked like on the outside is what they look like on the inside as they live their life apart from Jesus Christ. There's a remedy, okay? The remedy is Christ who gave his life on the cross to save people like us. There is oppression all around us. This oppression not only shows up in terms of lostness and the unsaved, it also shows up, if we're not careful, amongst the people of God to the degree that we give our lives over to temptation or to sin or to addiction. And so let me just ask a couple of what I call diagnostic questions. These questions reflect what we see described in this man oppressed as he was. But these questions can be asked by each one of you. And to the degree that our answers reflect this man in his oppression, then let me tell you, friend, even child of God, you too are oppressed by demons in your life. Here's the first question. What in your life doesn't like it when Jesus shows up? When the word of God speaks and your conscience says, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk about that. As Jesus showed up on the other side of the sea, immediately this demon-possessed man discerned a, a power that he didn't like. What are you doing here? Don't make me leave this place. I don't want to change. Secondly, what is it in your life that seeks to defy restraint? What is it in your life you don't want to put a check 
or a balance or any sort of accountability on. Listen, if you've ever known people that have problems with addiction or problems with other types of sins, listen, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you anything you want to hear. They'll do anything they have to do just so long as they leave a little bit of space just in case they want to do that which they know they're not supposed to do. It's oppression. What seems to have a power over you that you cannot control? In Romans 7, the apostle Paul describes something like this. He was describing, I believe, his own personal life in a struggle and in a time of difficulty. He says in Romans 7, 15, I don't even understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It's a description of oppression. I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's a perfect description of the oppression of sin. Brother or sister, what in your life causes great pain and anguish of soul? Those are the things the devil uses to oppress us. What is it that we do that we know is self-destructive and yet we, it remains in our life? There's only one way out from under the oppression of sin and lostness. Confession. Confession. Uh, confession is a relenting, a surrendering to Jesus. It's a giving over to him that which you know you cannot control. Confession, accountability, and discipline. This is the first word, oppression. It describes the opening verses of our passage. Let me share with you a second word as the story moves on. Notice with me what I call a scene of confrontation. In verses 6 down to verse 13, we actually have a little bit of a conversation between, as it turns out, not the man, right, but that the demons speak. Jesus, I believe, asks the man, what's your name? I'm reading between the lines a little, admittedly. But the man doesn't say, well, my name's so-and-so. The demon says, I ain't letting him talk. You're talking to me. I'm in control here. My name is Legion, and there's a whole lot of us. And they had full, total control. Under this heading, confrontation, let me share with you a couple of things I think it's important for us to observe. Number one, first off, notice the authority of Jesus in this passage. Although I think there's some hypocrisy on display, the first thing this demon-possessed man does is he runs and he throws himself down in the presence of Jesus as if to worship him. Some modern translations even use the word worship there. But we know worship's not a matter of, of just outward appearance. It's what's on the heart. And in the heart of that demon, there was no value placed on Jesus. But the demon approached Jesus, bowed at his feet, and begged Jesus not to torment him. Why? Because Jesus was in charge. Even at that very moment, that demon knew who Jesus was. It's almost as if the demon knew, knew you know, one day I know I'm going to be tormented in hell forever, but that day's not today. Jesus, what are you doing here today? I wasn't expecting you to show up, but here you are. We see Jesus's authority. We understand that authority comes from a place of victory, and it's a precursor to what's coming, deliverance, deliverance. This man, as we read, will be made whole once again. Let me just say a word about victory for a moment. Offer you some perspective, maybe on some spiritual battles that you're going through. Jesus spoke from a place of victory. 
the, the demon himself knew that one day that victory would, would be manifested. He knew he, he knew he was living on, on borrowed time. We speak from a place of victory. We ought to live from a place of confidence, knowing that things that appear a certain way today are not actually the way that things will be when all is said and done. It kind of reminds me, several months ago, I met a new guy in the community, okay? I, I don't remember his name. I remember meeting him. We were out at the rec ball fields, and somebody introduced me to this fella, and uh, he had on a hat that was advertising a college sports team that I don't particularly care for. And, uh, you know, as we men are prone to do, we jeered about that a little bit. And I, he said something, and I said, I don't know about that hat you got. I had on a Georgia T-shirt, and he said something about the shirt, and I said something about the hat. And he made the comment about his team. He said, oh, yeah, well, we're the best. Well, Georgia had just won the national championship, right? And so from a, a, a complete place of confidence and victory, I said, oh, no, you're not. Not this year you weren't. We got the big trophy at the end of the season. And so I spoke from a place of victory, right? That's where Jesus is. That's where we ought to be as his people. We have the victory. And yet, so many of us live knowing there's a victory, but on, on the ground level, what we experience feels so much more like defeat. Why is that? We are oppressed we live in two worlds at the same time but there's only one usually that we see the physical world there is a spiritual world note the authority with which Jesus operates let me observe a second thing here under this heading of confrontation note with me the danger of religion here's what I mean no one in this story no one knew who Jesus was better and with more specificity than did this demon who identified himself as legion. Right, the disciples are following Jesus. This story follows right off of the hills of Jesus calming um, the sea, the wind, and the waves. A story that ends with the disciples going, who is this guy? That even the wind and the waves obey. So they're all amazed at Jesus, but they're still not yet a conclusion as to who he is. The demon knew exactly who he was and ran and bowed before him and yet had no love for Jesus in his heart. He knew the truth. He did the outward thing, but there was no value for Jesus in his life. He had a religious head, but not a worshipful heart. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 15, verse 8. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he goes on to conclude, In vain do they worship me. Which means their worship doesn't add up to anything. It's no good. It might make them feel good for a little while, but they've accomplished nothing. One day, brothers and sisters, every knee will bow. We see, a, we see a, a foreshadowing of that. This demon throws himself before Jesus. There's no worship in his heart. But he knew he had to bow before Jesus. We see also in this passage the power of sin. May we be alarmed by it today. Things that are strong ought to scare us a little bit. And sin and its power and the demons 
who wield it around us are much stronger than maybe we like to believe sometimes. We learn about the crippling power of sin. This man forgot who he was. He was leading a life he never imagined he would lead, but there he was when Jesus met him. The name Legion is an interesting one. This part of the world known as ancient Palestine was actually ruled by the Roman Empire during Jesus' day. And especially so here where they showed up, the country of the Gerasenes. The Gerasene country represented one city in a union of ten cities. In the last verse of our passage, we read about something called the Decapolis. That means ten cities. There were ten Palestinian cities that the Roman Empire had taken over on this side of the Sea of Galilee, and they joined together, and it was supposed to be sort of a display of the cultural power and elite level of the Roman Empire wherever they showed up in the world. And here, the demon says, I am legion. Amongst the Roman Empire, the strongest military term they knew was the word legion. It represented the largest body of soldiers that they could commission. A legion was anywhere from four to 6,000 people. And so the name itself is intended to convey might and strength. And there's two things I want you to see before we go on to our last point. Number one, the man crippled under the weight of that sin and oppression. And so will you. But Jesus didn't even blink. So choose your sides accordingly. Jesus was much more powerful even than the most powerful of demons. Notice with me our last heading this morning. I use the word mission to describe the last few verses of our passage. Mission. After the deliverance transpires and we see this strange scene where the demons say, please don't make us leave the country. The demons are being resourceful. They realize they're outmatched. And they say, hey, will you send us over into this herd of pigs? Apparently there were a couple of thousand pigs nearby. And Jesus says, sure, that's fine. The demons go into the pigs. The pigs make their way off of a cliff and drown in the sea. It's all very strange. But what I want to focus on as we close this morning is the interaction between Jesus and this now delivered man whose life has been forever changed. And this man wants nothing more than to get in the boat with Jesus and his closest disciples and just be one of them. That's what he wants. He's never met anybody like Jesus. No one's ever done for him what Jesus has done. Why would he want to be anywhere else, right? I mean, from, from death and tombs and demonic uh, possession to life forevermore and the master in his very presence, he wanted to be with Jesus, but Jesus wouldn't let him. And what did Jesus say instead? He said, go home and tell your friends what I did in your life. That's a mission, y'all. That's all of our mission, the mission. And I think we can learn a few things about the mission that are very helpful for us. Number one, God gives us a people for the mission. What I mean by that is the people we're trying to reach. Think about the different types of persons in this passage. There were scared people, right? The herdsmen and the people that saw it. It says once the town found out about what happened, they were all afraid. 
There were curious people, right? People who heard about what happened. They went down to see Jesus and wanted to know what went on. There were perhaps spiritually curious people, right? Hey, something's happening here. Is, is there anything here for me? I'm interested. Can you tell me more? There were antagonistic people, right? Ultimately, they would tell Jesus, you got to leave. You got to leave. I, I find it fascinating. The demon wanted to stay in that region and the people wanted Jesus to leave. Not a great location, if you ask me. And that's right where Jesus sent the man, to those people. Normal people, crazy people, so affected by the demonic, the demons didn't want to leave, and Jesus wasn't allowed to stay. And that's precisely where Jesus sends people on mission, into the lostness. Notice another observation about our mission we have hope for the mission. Hope. What is the hope? All right. If you could think of the absolute worst case scenario of a lost person, I think this garrison demoniac fits the bill, right? I mean, completely isolated, living in a graveyard, screaming out, possessed by thousands of demons, cutting himself, wreaking havoc on the community. This guy was as lost as lost could be. Jesus saved him in a minute. It was nothing for Jesus to save this guy. Nothing. And if there's hope for him, trust me, there's hope for your family member who, who just doesn't seem interested. There's hope for your friend who's glad for you, but, you know, they, they've had enough of that. There's hope for anybody if there was hope for this man. He was an unclean man, a sense in which he was living in an unclean area on a hillside with the epitome of what the Old Testament considered to be unclean animals ruled by an unclean empire. And Jesus saved him just in a minute like it was nothing, nothing. The demons begged Jesus for mercy at his mere presence, and there was deliverance. Let me share another observation about our mission, and that's a warning for the mission. I see in this story a warning for any of us who would, rather than be on mission, we would just rather our spiritual life be more about us. Rather than our churches making sacrifices and maybe even sometimes doing things that are uncomfortable, we'd rather our churches just sort of be religious activity centers where we can do things that make us feel good and maybe make us feel like we're growing in our walk but never make us uncomfortable. It reminds me of this man who wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus and the disciples seem like they're having a great time. Jesus, let me come with you. I just want to do Jesus stuff all day. And Jesus said, uh-uh. There's lost people. Go home to them. Tell them about me. Tell them about what happened in your life. Tell them about the mercy that you received. We are to be missionaries in our homes in our neighborhoods, in our schools. We are to be missionaries. Our churches are to be missionary outposts, not just gatherings where we sing our favorite songs and hear things that make us feel, feel like we're right. We're to be on a mission, just like this man that Jesus sent to tell others, our homes, our neighborhoods, our communities, they are the mission fields. Let me share with you one final observation about our mission. Jesus goes so far as to give some, I think, really clear, plain instructions for the mission. And I have no problems saying what Jesus told this man, today he tells you. Go home, 
to your friends, tell them what Jesus has done for you. This is so clear. That's your family. That's your friends. That's your community. He ended up in the Decapolis, that entire region, just telling people, anybody who'd listen, I was possessed by a legion of demons, and one day Jesus showed up on the seashore. My whole life was just lost. Everyone pitied me until Jesus showed up. When he showed up, there was a little battle. It got a little tense, but he whooped that demon in a minute and changed my life forever, and ever since then, I've been in my right mind. Everything's better, and I want you to have the same. He was a missionary. That's the story of a testimony. That's what in Christian circles we call our testimony. What our life was like before we met Jesus. The circumstances surrounding the actual meeting where we were saved by Jesus. How our life's been changed, improved, different, more meaningful since we met Jesus. This man is a perfect model of the missionary ministry of every single normal child of God. We've been called to share in the same way. And one thing that I learned this week as I studied this passage, you know, I always thought that the Apostle Paul, he was really the first missionary to the Gentiles. Well, on this side of the Sea of Galilee, there was a lot of Gentiles. The reason there were thousands of pigs is probably because there were Gentiles in the area and the pig, and the pig farming was a big part of their economy. This man... This crazy demon-possessed man, he was the first missionary to the Gentiles. Matter of fact, some of us, if we could go back that far, we might even could trace our Christian genealogy all the way through the generations to a formerly crazy man who met Jesus and changed his life forever. How can you be a missionary? How can you reach people in our community? Let me give you a couple of really simple, easy ways Number one, invite someone to church. When you invite someone to church, that is a missions-oriented activity. Trust me. Remember, I was at Walmart at 10 o'clock this morning. There's plenty of people to pick from who don't really go to church. Like, it's just amazing. I'm so insulated from the community as a pastor. I'm just always in church. I mean, that's my job. It's my calling. So I'm never outside of church when church is going on. Turns out there's a whole world out there. They're all just doing stuff while we're in here. Let's invite them to church. And you know, you know what make that invitation pack a punch? Don't just say, oh, hey, feel like I don't want you to come to church. Okay, let's move on to the next subject. Don't invite them that way. Say, I'd love to have you come to church with me. Starts at 1030. Meet me in the parking lot at 1015. You don't have to feel uncomfortable. I'll meet you out there. I'll walk in with you. You can sit with me and we'll go to the Chinese buffet when church is over with. It'll be a great time. That's how, that's, how you, that's how you pack a, a punch to your invitation. Miss Sally apparently likes the Chinese buffet. <laughs> or maybe she was uh, amen in some other part of that. That's how you can get started with a missionary mindset. Just invite someone to church. Here's another way. These are simple things you can do. Keep a list, a prayer list of people in your life that you're not sure of their salvation. And when you wake up in the morning, or, or if you're a night owl before you go to bed, look at your list. God would you save this person? Would you just cause the wonderful wind of your Holy Spirit to blow in their life? And just keep the list. The days will turn into weeks, will turn into months, and before you know it, God will be working in their life. Because you, my missionary friend, have been praying 
for them. How else can you be a missionary? Get involved in Sunday school. Some, some of your friends may not want to come in the sanctuary uh, for a first time. It may seem really scary to them. Invite them to come to Sunday school with you. It's a wonderful way just to get them here. Study God's Word together. Invite them there. It's a very easy on-ramp into the life of our church. How else can you be a missionary? It's, it's a really easy one. Read your Bible. It's amazing to me, just through reading the Bible, how God gives me sometimes a word to share with people that I don't know I'm going to meet, a word that I don't know I'm going to need, but he gave it to me because I was in his word. And you can be the same way. One other way, just real quick, there's so many ways. Help with a ministry like Awana, right? Do you know we have around 100 kids here on Wednesday nights? Many of whom, our Awana workers will tell you, many of whom outside of our Wednesday night ministry, they don't go to church a lot. And so after these couple of years or so where they're involved in Juanas, they may never really go to church again. And it's a really great way to just love those kids, to learn their name, to learn, to learn about them, to say, how's your week been at school? To teach them that Jesus loves them. It's a wonderful way to be on mission. There's a lot of lostness out there, y'all. And if you've been delivered from a life of sin and lostness, Jesus commissions you the same way he commissioned this formerly demon-possessed man. Your testimony may not be as dramatic. It's no less miraculous. Let me invite you, if you would, to bow with me. We're going to have a time of response here at the end of our service. If God has touched your heart in any way, I want to invite you to respond somehow. Now, often the way we respond is by coming and kneeling at the altar, just asking God to do a work making the commitment. Maybe, maybe the Lord laid something on your heart this morning. Maybe there's a person in your mind and you know that they are oppressed by sin or lostness. Maybe during our invitation time, you want to come and pray for that friend or that family member. You come. If you're here this morning and you say, no, I'm the one who feels oppressed. There's sin in my life that I just can't seem to gain victory regarding. Once you come, why don't you come? And as this man bowed down at the feet of Jesus, you come and you bow down here at the altar and say, Jesus, deliver me. Have mercy upon me. If you're here this morning, you've never given your heart to Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus will save you. He saved this man. He'll save you. Just give him your heart today. Confess your sin. Ask him to forgive you. And tell him, Jesus, I want to give you my life. He will save you today. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing now as we respond. Lord, would you give freedom in this room that we may respond as you would see fit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. The invitation has been given. The altars are open. You be obedient. Be sensitive. As the